0: So I guess we're also broadcasting live. So to those of you that are not with us, I'll look at the camera at least once to say, good morning, it's good to have you here. And then I'm probably going to ignore you because there's people here, I'll be looking at them. So it's good to have you tuning in. Uh, If you are not able to make it, you can uh, subscribe to our YouTube channel. Um, I understand there were some technical issues. Uh, We keep working on them. I don't know what half of them are half the time, but um, you can subscribe to the YouTube channel and try to to log in live. But um, it's so much better to be here And so we hope you all can join us. Uh, We'll be rearranging chairs. We should be able to seat up to, we're hoping we'll be able to seat up to uh, 40 to 50 people um, by arranging the chairs. And so hopefully you can join us and be a part of that uh, starting next week. So, hi, how you doing? So we're going to start off uh, with a word of prayer. And then we're going to just jump right into our message for this morning um, because I don't have a music team yet because we haven't figured out how to be 12 feet apart on this stage and actually have a music team. But we'll work on that, too. Somehow Like they put people in the back corners and just mic everybody, uh, put a bagpipe out in the parking lot and then everybody will hear it. It's something I don't know. But why don't we pray and start? Father, we are so grateful for your love. We're so thankful for a chance to gather, uh, whether in person or remotely. We're thankful that no matter what our circumstances are, and no matter how our lives and our culture change, that you never change, and that you remain faithful and steadfast. We thank you for your word that we can study this morning and how it reveals your heart. We just pray that you would enlarge our vision of your heart, and our understanding of your work, that we'd be open to the message that your spirit wants to speak into our lives today and that in all things that your name would be praised, we ask. In the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, amen. Okay, so I need you to turn to in your Bibles to the book of Malachi. Malachi chapter three. We're going to actually wrap up the book of Malachi this morning. At least we're going to try to. uh, If I can get through everything, Um, it's going to be tough because there's a potential for a lot of rabbit trails here, uh, but there's also a lot to cover. So Malachi chapter three. And we're going to start reading in just a minute in verse 13. So Malachi 3.13. This is the last book in our Old Testament. Um, and so if you're if you're not quite sure where to go, if you find the Gospel of Matthew and go back, you'll you'll hit Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, verse 13. I want to start with a statement or a question. How many of you ever heard the phrase or the question, what's in it for me? You ever heard that? How many of you ever used that? question, what's in it for me? Um, my kids have used that with me from time to time when I've asked them to do something or said, Hey, would you like to do this? And they're like, well, what's in it for me? It's amazing. If you Google that phrase, what you will come up with on the internet, you will find everything from what you can learn about an abusive relationship. Um, how to grow your business and business advice. You can find out personal life coaching and everything in between. If you ask the question, what's in it for me, everybody seems to want to ask that question. And our society seems to think that that's the right question to ask in every situation. In other words, why would you get into a relationship if there wasn't something you were going to get out of it? Why would you get into a business partnership if there was nothing for you to gain? Why would you, Go to church if there's nothing that you're going to receive in return. And about the only place that I know of where this question seems totally out of place is in the upside down Jesus culture. Because in the Jesus culture, the idea of what's in it for me is one of the most foreign ideas you could imagine. And we see that in the book of Malachi uh, chapter three, as we're going to look today. While the words themselves, what's in it for me, are not inherently evil, and there's nothing wrong with them, a lot of times it reveals a heart issue that has to be addressed. There's something wrong behind the question more often than not. And this last dispute, this last message that the messenger, Malachi, is going to bring to Israel is one that really exposes a heart issue and a disturbing attitude in the Israelites. So Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 13. The words against me are harsh, says the Lord. And you ask, well, what have we spoken against you? You have said it is useless to serve God. What have we gained by keeping his requirements and walking mournfully before the Lord of armies? So now we consider the arrogant to be fortunate. Not only do those who commit wickedness prosper, they even test God and escape. In essence, the Jews were asking God, what's in it for us? We, we follow your commands and we repent. And what gain have we gotten from it? How, what, what reward have we received for the lives that we've lived for you? They've been asking this question of what's in it for us. So let's look at that charge a little bit more. What have we gained through our re- obedience and repentance? What have we gained? Well, what do you suppose they were thinking of or referencing when they were asking what have we gained? What are they they probably considering as they ask that question? What have we gained? Power. They certainly don't have power anymore, do they? They've been conquered by three different kingdoms at this point. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, and the Persians. Okay. What have we gained? And what else? How about possessions? Right? They've been exiled. They were kicked out of their land. They lost their homes. They lost their crops. They lost all the stuff of value that they had, that God had actually given them as an inheritance, by the way. This land will be an inheritance to you, and it was divided up by God as to who got what land. They've lost all that. God, we've followed you. What have we gained from it? We've lost our land. We've lost our power. We're no longer even a nation. They were really looking at the physical things, weren't they? The things around them, their circumstances when they compared their physical possessions and their wealth to the nations around them, it seemed like they had gotten the short end of the stick. And so they asked, God, what was in it for us? Why is it so special to be your people? Now this might seem like a a really foreign concept, but not too long ago, we had the privilege of having a young man come and stay with us for the night he was from Israel. He was actually a Jew who lived in Jerusalem. He was staying right in our house. And I thought, well, this is a great opportunity. So we stayed up way too late just talking about stuff. And I, and I said, can I, can I ask you some questions? He's like, well, of course. I said, what's it like? You know, what's your First of all, what's your view of God? And second of all, what's it like being a Jew living in Jerusalem? He said, well, let me tell you, I don't believe that God exists. This is a Jew living in Jerusalem. This is one of God's people. I don't believe God exists. Cuz I believe religion was invented to create a moral society and to pass on moral teachings, and for that reason alone religion is good, but I don't believe God exists, he said. My chin just like dropped. So okay, well, so what's it like being a Jew in Jerusalem? He said, "Well, he said it's really not very special." His his words were, it's great if you like walking around with a target on your back. You see, we have this land and everybody wants our land. So we are constantly at war. Our young men go into the army and they serve and they have to because we're constantly in battle. We never have peace. There's war on all the sides of us. And really what he was saying in a very real sense was I don't believe in God. I don't follow God because I don't see what God is doing. I don't see what's so great about being God's people. What have we gained from being God's people except a target on our back and war all the time. Modern day, very much the same mindset. Where is God? Why would I follow a God that blesses everyone else and makes me a target? What has God done for me? And those words really shocked me as I sat in my living room. I'm like, what? But you're like, you're like one of God's people. You're, you're, You've been picked, you selected by God, isn't that? It meant nothing to him at that point. There's very much the harsh, same harsh words that these post-exile Jews had for God. However, I find that this mentality has even crept into modern churchdom, into our modern day society. That even we who are not Jews, that are Gentiles according to the scriptures, that those of us that are not born into the family of Abraham can have the same kind of attitude about God. And here's some of the ways that I see uh, it happen in the modern church. So some of you, unfortunately, I guess, and fortunately, get to move around a lot. God takes you to many different places. And you have to do this awful thing of finding a new church everywhere you go. It can become very easy to walk into the doors of a church and think, well, is this church going to meet my needs? In other words, if I attend here, we have to be careful it doesn't become a what's in it for me. What am I going to get out of this relationship with this church? Uh, we can say, I don't care for the type of music or style of preaching. It's not what I want. It's too small of a church. It's too big of a church. It's not my preference. Um, and these sorts of attitudes start to creep in. Uh, here's where, another place I see it. Uh, we had before the COVID, we had a nursery, right? You want me to serve in the nursery or teach Sunday school? Listen, I don't have any kids. My kids are grown up. I'll miss the music and the message. I don't want to serve in the nursery or teach. Attend a Bible study? I have a busy schedule. I'm in the middle of binge watching my favorite series for the third time on Netflix. I'd I'd have to give up something else. I don't have time to study the Bible. And in each of these scenarios, I think what we've done is we've assessed the value of what's being asked and what we'd have to give up. And we're asking ourselves the question, what's in it for me? Is it worth it to me? What would I gain or what would I lose? Now, if we go back to the book of Malachi, we're in the sixth dispute, the sixth charge, where Malachi brings forth this, says, hey, listen, you've done this. And then he speaks rhetorically for the Jews. Well, how have we done that? And then Malachi speaks for God and says, but this is what you've done. This is the sixth one. And if you go back through the other five, you'll see the same mentality of what's in it for me, the same attitude throughout the other five. For instance, give 10% of my resources. What's in it for me, God? Give the outcasts and the, a, a priority and take care of the needy. What's in it for me, God? Spend time reading and teaching God's word. Make my marriage and my relationship with my wife the priority that you want it to be. What's in it for me, God? And the problem with this question in God's economy is that it rarely ever lines up with the heart of God. It rarely ever lines up with the heart of God or his plan for mankind. If we truly love God and if we truly love our neighbors, our neighbors, it would be very difficult to ask what's in it for me with a clear conscience. And I really believe that. This attitude really goes back to a place in the beginning. And that's where I want us to go back to now. Remember, the prophets are a bridge. We're going to talk about that toward the end here. But many times they're going to take us back to the very beginning of the story in Genesis, and they're going to point to the very end of the story in Revelation. So I want us to go back to the very beginning, back to Genesis. Chapter three in verse one. We're gonna to go to the, to the garden and there was this serpent that tempted Eve, right? I want you to listen to what the serpent tempted Eve with and see if you can pick up on the same lessons that we're catching in Malachi chapter three. Genesis chapter three, verses one through six. Starting in verse one. Now, the serpent was the most cunning of all the wild animals that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, well, we may eat the fruit from the trees in the garden, but about the fruit of the tree in the middle of the garden, God said, you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. No, you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, in fact, God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, delightful to look at, and desirable for attaining of wisdom. So she took some of its fruit and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Do you see the, how cunning that message is? What is the serpent really saying to Eve in this passage? don't you see that your eyes will be open? Don't you see that you will be like God? What is he doing? He's telling her, don't you see what's in it for you? If you do this, you will get these things. Doesn't matter how your relationship with God will be impacted or your relationship with each other. If you do this, here's what you will gain. And I think this is one of the temptations that we face all the time today. So the woman ponders it and she says, oh, well, it's nice to look at. And it's probably going to be really yummy and it'll make me wise. In other words, she sat there and thought about what do I gain from this? And so she takes it, she eats it, gives it to Adam, he eats it. She'd be satisfied. She'd be wise or so she thought, but what she failed to do was what? What did she fail to do in all of this? Obey God, right? So you have Either I'm going to do what I feel is right and what looks right in my own eyes by saying what's in it for me and this will give me something and I'll benefit from it. Or in her case, I'm going to obey God and I'm not going to do those things, which is really what's in her best interest, (laughs) not taking from the fruit. So there's either fearing God or taking what I want because I think it's what I deserve uh, or what I want. The conclusion of a self-serving attitude like this is consequentialism, where we start to say, well, if the outcome is good, I'll do whatever I want to make sure the outcome comes out the way that I want. This will give me what I want. Um, And anytime we live with a self-serving attitude, we really fail to live in the fear of the Lord. Anytime we live with a self-serving attitude, we fail to live in the fear of the Lord. It's a pretty blunt statement. But what are the two greatest commandments? To love God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. And what's the other one? To love your neighbor as yourself. You cannot love God and serve yourself. You cannot love your neighbor and serve yourself above them. So anytime we live a self-serving life, and have a self-serving attitude. We fail to live in the fear of the Lord. And just just like with Eve, Eve believed a lie that she could have these things and should have these things, and, and that there was gain in it for her, and she believed the lie that that was better than obeying God. The Jews in Malachi chapter three were believing a lie. They were believing an untruth about God and the way that God works. In chapter 3, verse 15, they said this. So we consider the arrogant fortunate. We consider that those that are proud and those that have no humility whatsoever, that are probably even oppressive, um, that they're they're the fortunate ones, not us. We consider those who commit, we see that those who commit wickedness prosper. In other words, if we're doing the right things, we're, we're getting punished. But those people who are not doing the right things or cheating others and just being doing whatever they want for their own gain, they're prospering and we're not. And those people, they've even tested God and they've escaped. We're being punished by God. I so, know we've tested God, but we're being punished, but they're being punished and they're not being tested. So what have we gained, really, is what they're saying. Look around. The arrogant climb the ladder of success. Those that break the laws have more. Those that challenge God and say there is no God are not even punished by God himself. What do we gain by following God? Now, I don't know about you, but have you heard those words? Maybe not exactly that way in our modern culture. I know I have. At first scan around the world of the world around them, it appeared as though God favored those who did not fear him. A couple of weeks ago, we brought up Malachi chapter six. I'm sorry, not Malachi, Micah chapter six, two different two prophets, sorry. We brought up Micah chapter six and verse eight. Micah is one of the other prophets that's speaking to the nation Israel and trying to teach them how to live. And in Micah six, eight, he says this He, he that's God, has shown you, oh man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you. It's to do justly, it's to love mercy. And it's to walk humbly with your God. These three things. And basically what the Jews are saying in this passage is those three things don't work, God. We're not getting what we think we should out of doing those three things. You want us to act justly? Why should we act justly when it's the wicked who are prospering? You want us to love faithfulness? Why should we be faithful when those that test God face no consequences? You want us to walk humbly with you? Why should we when the arrogant are the ones who are fortunate? They're basically challenging the way that God wants them to live and saying, it doesn't work, God. Your economy says this, but our reality says this, and we're going to believe our current reality as opposed to believing what you say. There's a heart issue here. So Malachi draws us to this point on purpose. This last charge is that God favors those who don't fear him more that he favors those that do fear him from a physical perspective. And he draws to this point in this chapter where there has to be a decision made on what you believe. He doesn't give us all the details behind the accusations. He doesn't tell us all the reasons why the Jews might feel this way. You have to kind of fill in some of the blanks. But he certainly wants us to realize that there's two different groups that are represented here. There's two different people in God's economy, and the difference comes down to a choice. The difference always comes down to a choice. There's two groups of people that are brought out in this passage, and it's interesting that they're people that are talking among themselves, and it's kind of the way the Malachi brings them out. Um, in, in Malachi chapter 3 and verse 13. I'm going to read to you uh, this verse from the Jewish Publication Society's version of it um, because it actually adds a little bit of of nuance to the verse that we don't have in our English ones. Uh, Malachi 3.13. You have spoken harsh, hard words against me, says the Lord. But you ask, what have we been saying among ourselves against you? The, The JPS Tanakh brings in that. What have we been saying among ourselves? And it's implied in the rest of the verse that that's really what's going on here because it's you, plural. You've been saying, you say these things. Um, but then when you go to chapter 3 and verse 16, we read about a second group. The first group in verse 13 says, God favors the unjust. Why should I follow God? What's in it for me? I don't gain anything in following God. In chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, at that time, Those who feared the Lord spoke to one another, and the Lord took notice and listened. And so a book of remembrance was written before him for those who feared the Lord and had high regard for his name. So you have these two groups that appear to be speaking among themselves. On the one side, you have those that are saying, it's not worth it to follow God. These would be those that don't fear God. And On the other side, you have this group that comes together and says, hey, listen, I don't care what we see around us, we're going to fear God. So it's like going back to the garden and saying, I don't care what temptation we we, we have in front of us, we're going to do what God says. No matter how I feel about my circumstances, I'm going to do what God says. So those that, that fear God and those that don't fear God, two different groups talking among themselves. And then it says that God's going to take those that fear him. He's going to write down their names in a book, book of remembrance. We have a lot of books of remembrances in our scriptures matter of fact, a lot of the Old Testament is books of remembrances where we're chronicling, like chronicles, chronicling the events that took place, where they're remembering what took So when you read the book of, of Esther and you find out about a plot that, to kill the king and the king can't sleep one night, and he says, hey, read me the history of me. There's a book of remembrance about the king who wanted about his own life. So there's a lot of book of remembrances. This, this one says that God's going to have a book of remembrance with the names of all of those who feared him that had regard for his name. And then he says in verse 17 and 18, they will be mine, says the Lord of armies. My own possession on the day I am preparing. I will have compassion on them as a man has compassion on his sons who serves him. So you will again see the difference between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve God. So from this book, we see that God is categorizing people into two different categories, kind of polarizing them, one one extreme and the other. Those that fear God, those that do not fear God. Those that live for this life, those that live for the next life. Those that love God, those that love themselves. Those that serve God, those that don't serve God. Those that um, are righteous and those that are wicked. And so all throughout Malachi, he's, he's drawing these distinctions. and He's pointing out mostly the, the negatives until this last section. So the wicked are those that speak harshly against God and seek their own temporary gain. And the ones that fear God are the ones that are being faithful to God, despite their circumstances. And God says those that fear him will be his possession. So again, remembering the prophets are taking us back and also pointing us forward. Taking us back in this case, even to Exodus chapter 19, when God called Israel to himself and said this, if you keep my commandment, if you keep my promises, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all people for the earth is mine. The people who will be God's possession will be those that fear him. Interestingly enough, the prophets also teach us that it's not just those who are born of the line of Abraham, but any person from any part of the earth that chooses to fear God and live for him will be a part of God's people, his possession. So as we wrap up this last dispute, I think we need to go back to the idea of talking among ourselves. And I want to ask, have us ask some questions about our own lives. So if we were to to sit down at the table and to just talk among ourselves and just talk about our circumstances, if we were to talk about our relationships, if we were to talk about our jobs, if we were to talk about our government, if we were to talk about the coronavirus, if we were to talk about whatever situations are in our lives right now, and we assess them, would we come to the table and say, you know what, just not sure God is doing what he's supposed to be doing. Where is God in the midst of all of this? Why should I follow God? What's in it for me? Because I'm sure not seeing God show up now. Or will we be in the other camp saying, you know what? No matter what's happening right now, God is still in control. God is still the one worth living for. That God is still the one that I will trust and follow. No matter what my circumstances look like, I'm going to be obedient to him going to walk in his ways, even if I don't like it at this time. So if we were to talk among ourselves, which group would you find yourself in? The reality for most of us is that we would probably find ourselves bouncing between the camps, depending upon the circumstance or the situation, right? In this area, yeah, I can see God is in control or I'm willing to trust God here, but over here, I'm really struggling right now. So whatever part of your life you're asking yourself, is God really working here? Is it worth obeying God and being faithful to him in this area? That's the place you need to start and saying, God, help me to just trust you and to follow you during this time. We get to the end of Malachi chapter four, and there's six verses in this. I want to read them together, because now that the last dispute is over, God's going to give us the big picture as to why. And we started in Malachi six weeks ago, seven weeks ago. We started in Malachi six weeks ago, I think it was, um, saying that we're going to use Malachi to help us understand the purpose of the prophets, because we're going to go back and look at some of the prophets. And I think one of the reasons it's really helpful to do that is the end of Malachi kind of shows us God's plan. Um, for what he's going to be doing and how everything that we talked about fits into um, our current reality. In Malachi chapter four, starting in verse one, Malachi says this, look, the day of the Lord is coming or the day is coming burning like a furnace when all the arrogant and everyone who commits wickedness will become stubble. The coming day will consume them, says the Lord of armies, not leaving them root or branches, But for you who fear my name, the son of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You will go out and playfully jump like calves from the stall, and you'll trample the wicked. They will be ashes under your soles of your feet on the day that I am preparing, says the Lord of armies. Remember the instruction of Moses, my servant, the statues and ordinances I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel look, I am going to send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. This last section, Malachi chapter three, verses 13 through the end, um, could really be broken down kind of like this. There's the dispute, there's the response, Chapter four, verses one through three, there's a reminder of the final day of the Lord, the the day of the Lord. Now, This is taking us to the book of Revelation. Okay, this is the, the final day of the Lord when God will set everything right. And then in verses four through six, he says, but remember the instructions of Moses. In other words, fear God, obey his commands. And I'm going to send somebody to you. I'm going to send Elijah to you. And I'm going to send somebody to you. In other words, I'm going to keep my promise. The Messiah is going to come to try to straighten things out before that day happens. And we've talked about this in in Malachi. This shows the mercy of God. (laughs) He didn't just wipe everybody out. Like, no, I'm going to send the Messiah. He's going to help you see what it means to, to be the human I created you to be. And he's going to show you how to walk in obedience to the law of God and how to trust me and how to love me. And he's going to help turn people back to the father before I come and set things right. So he comes into this saying, listen, as you read through Malachi, go back and read through it again. You're going to read about the day or a day, realize there's many days of the Lord in the scriptures. And then there's the day of the Lord, which comes at the end. They all involve judgment. God says, someday there's a judgment coming, but. Back in the beginning, after the, after the sin in chapter 3 and verse 15, I promised that I would send the seed of the woman, that she would, that he would come and he would crush the serpent. Serpent would bruise his heel, but he would crush the serpent's head. That one who's going to come and undo the things that the serpent did is the Messiah. And right after Malachi in our Bibles, we go into the Gospels. Why? We believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah that God promised. And that even here where he talks about, I'm sending Elijah to you. When we get to the gospels, we're going to come back and visit that verse again, because you're going to find that that's attributed to John the Baptist, who's preparing the way for Jesus. The exact quote from this book is referring to John the Baptist. So we'll get to that in the future. But he's saying this, you have to live for God now, no matter what your circumstances are. You have to be willing to trust God, whether your circumstances are good during the reign of David and Solomon, where things are prosperous, or whether you're being disciplined because you've turned your back on me, or whether I'm allowing circumstances like the, like the situation in Egypt where they did nothing wrong, but were made servants of Pharaoh in the first place, regardless of the circumstances, are you willing to trust God and to be faithful to what he says, even if it hurts, even if it's hard? even if you don't see the return right away. Because someday we will be accountable for that. Someday God will call us to the carpet on that. And in the meantime, he's given us Jesus as an example. He's given us Jesus as the perfect human who will not live for himself. <laughs> Man, if, if there's anybody who ever refuted the concept of what's in it for me it had to be jesus start with his death as he hung on a cross and said father forgive them they don't know what they're doing i'm dying on the cross for their sins forgive them wait i'm sure he wasn't saying gee god what's in it for me matter of fact when he was in the garden before that and he prayed he said father he said if it's possible, take this away from me, but but not what I want, what you want. What's in it for you, not what's in it for me. As he gave up homes, was ridiculed by family, was mocked by the religious society around him, he continued to show love and sacrifice and commitment, knowing that he would be giving his very life have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to hang on to, but he emptied himself and came to earth and took on the form of a man, being willing to be obedient to the point of death, even a death on the cross. Jesus came and said, God, Father, what's in it for them? Not what's in it for me. And the call to fear God is a call of living a life that says, what's in it for them? What's in it for my spouse? What's in it for my children? What's in it for my community? What's in it for God's glory, not my glory? The message of the prophets is, be faithful to follow God no matter what. He is the one worth trusting. He is the one. Is in control. He is the one who truly knows what's best. We don't. We make puny gods, <laughs> but He is an awesome God. So I want to ask you as we wrap up today do you struggle trusting God? Do you struggle really being willing to obey God no matter what? I know that sometimes I do. I know that it's easy to get beaten down. To get beat up by life, by work, by circumstances, by relationships, by health. And to just want to throw it all in. But I want to reassure you and to remind you and to call you out the way God has called out uh, his people through Malachi. Be careful which group you stand with and have conversation with. Make sure you're standing with the group that says, no, no matter what, I will be Don't be in the other group. And we said that the prophets, their problem with the prophets is they're, they're confrontational. The problem with reading the prophets and studying them is that it's meant to hit us between the eyes. It's not that pastors stand up here and go, well, let's see what we can bring up that's going to be uncomfortable for people today. That's not why we share these things. These are God's words, and they're meant to be tough. So I want you to think this morning. You don't have to write anything down, but what area in your life have you questioned God's goodness or God's ability or God's justice? What area in your life have you said, God, I'm not sure you're doing what you're supposed to be doing, or where you've just chosen that? I'm going to do what I want, not what God wants. And that's the area that we need to stop and just repent and say, God, I'm sorry. Teach me to live the way my savior lived. Teach me to live in humility. Teach me to live for others, not for myself. Teach me to live God for you and not for me. Help me not to focus on the things of this world, but to realize that how I relate to the things of this world An act of worship to you. How am I worshiping you in all of those things? Because all of life exists to declare the glory of God, not our own glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God that can be trusted. Thank you that you are merciful, and in your mercy you choose to convict us. In your mercy, you choose to discipline us. And you do it so that we can draw back to you. Father, we know that in our lives, it's easy for us to jump into the camp of saying, well, God, where are you in all of this? And What have you done? And why am I still in this situation? Or why would you want me to be in this pain or in this trial? But Father, help us to be faithful to come over to the other camp and to say, we'll fear you, we'll follow you, we'll obey your your." your commands, knowing that you truly are God worth trusting. Father, help us to heed the words of your prophet, to not be arrogant, to not treat others wickedly, but to have your heart. Help us to reflect you well to the world around us, and to bring honor and glory to your name. we pray. Amen. Um, we are, I want to thank you for joining us with, with the study of Malachi. Um, we're, we're done with Malachi. We're going to go back and revisit some of the other prophets. Before we do that, we're going to actually talk about the different types of literature in the Bible. We're going to talk about prophecy, poetry, and wisdom literature, and historical writings, and narrative writings things like that so that we can understand the way that we're going to study and preach through this next section because it's going to be different as we hit different books and lord willing we're going to jump into the book of jonah who was one of the first prophets on the scene and i think you'll understand the the history of jonah and then we're going to go through a couple more prophets so that we can then go to the gospels and understand the message of christ as it relates to the law and the prophets that we've been studying so that's our a long-term plan. Um, if you would like an extra um, curricular assignment from the book of Malachi, you're welcome to do some research on the concept of testing God. David and I were talking about this one and kind of bouncing it back and forth. And um, in Malachi chapter three, God tells the people to test him. Malachi chapter three, the people say, well, these wicked people test you, God, and you don't punish them. And in, in the Gospels, when Jesus was tempted by, uh, in the wilderness, by the, the Satan, um, Jesus says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So we seem to have God saying in one verse, test me, and another other ones, it's not okay to test God. And so if you really want an interesting thing to study for homework, go ahead and study what it means to test God, and when is it okay, and when is it not, and what does the Bible say about it. And email any uh, thoughts that you have on that to David. And he'll look them over and get back to you. I think I had to bounce it. I had to bounce it back to you. You bounced it to me last week. So I had to ping pong it back to you. Um, so uh, any anybody have any uh, questions or thoughts? Um, we kind of got in the habit of doing this since we don't have music and we have extra time since we were uh, doing the podcast. But anybody you have any thoughts or questions or challenges about the book of Malachi or even? the the end of it and the idea of the Messiah and the day of the Lord? No, none. All right. Okay. So, all right. So what i will do, David, I'm going to have you uh, cancel the live feed at this point, and then we'll have a time of prayer. And if anybody has prayer requests, you can share them. And then we'll um, spend a couple minutes praying together. As we, as we wrap up our time.